We're reading this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya beyond Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them on our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Father, what a great text of scripture. Mm. Uh, what an immense amount of things to talk about. And we just pray that you would not only empower Tom to, to fix our attention on these things, but also would you challenge us to look further into these things, which could take hours and hours of, of wonderful time to contemplate and to thank you for. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Sinclair Ferguson has a great message on this uh, passage, which, by the way, is 63 minutes long. <laughs> this one won't be that long. But uh, at, at one point in the message, he says, uh, after, you've, after you've pulled down the oxygen mask and taken a little for yourself, make sure your neighbor gets some, that there is a lot here, and, uh, and so I'll give you that same little warning. Uh, when I was a, a brand-new Christian at age 16, uh, there was this band called the Second Chapter of Acts. Some of you older Christians know about it. And, and I liked them, listened to their music, but I didn't know anything about the Second Chapter of Acts, so I got up my Bible and I looked it up. And then I realized why they thought it was worthy of naming a band after. This is a magnificent passage. On the day of Pentecost, roughly 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and about a week and a half after his ascension, the 11 apostles of, of Jesus were gathered together in one place. And based on the chapter just before this, chapter 1, I take that place to be the same upper room in Jerusalem that was the focal point of, uh, gospel, of John's gospel in verses 11, uh, chapters 11 through 16, where Jesus met with his disciples the night that he was betrayed and arrested the night before his crucifixion. In verses 2 to 4, again, let me read those. And suddenly, as they're gathered in this room, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 2 says, suddenly, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house. And by the way, the noise was so great that it caused the multitudes that were not in that house to gather around, to come around that place. We find that in the next verses. Now, some translations say 
Uh, rather than violent rushing wind, they, they render it as mighty rushing wind. But violent is a better translation, both based on the word, uh, the Greek word that's used and on the context. It is not merely some potential strength of the Holy Spirit that is at issue on this day. It is the forceful, overpowering effect of the Spirit's activity in that place and in and through this group of men. Much as natural childbirth is not something that human beings control, even though they would like to be able to, but is something that takes control, so this was God taking control of people and events to bring about the birth of Christ's church in a manner that was very visible and even audible to all who were in that part of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, immediately before Jesus physically ascended from earth to heaven to reclaim his rightful place of glory at his Father's right hand, he promised his disciples that not many days from that day, not many days from his ascension day, he, Jesus, was going to pour forth the Holy Spirit promised by the Father. Jesus told them that when that happened, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would receive power. They would receive power. Power for what? Power to be his witnesses, both in their own community of Jerusalem and then in the region around community called Judea and then in Samaria, the adjacent community, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. Power to be his witnesses. That was the purpose of the pouring out of the Spirit. Jesus equated this pouring out of the Holy Spirit with baptism. He said, Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And now in Acts 2, we're, we're at that day that he promised. The ascended Christ in this passage fulfills that promise. This, beloved, was God filling his new temple. God filling his new temple. About 1,500 years before all this, after the exodus from Egypt, God brought the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai, and he gave Moses instructions to give to the Israelites about how to construct a tabernacle which would be the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. The Holy Spirit enabled and orchestrated that whole construction project. If you read through Exodus, you see that it was men empowered, enabled by, especially enabled by the Holy Spirit to do every facet of that, of that construction, even of the garments that the priests wore. Then in the last, the very last chapter of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, after all of it had been constructed, the glory of Yahweh came down out of heaven and filled that dwelling place in the form of his holy fire, his holy fire. Let me read a few verses from Exodus 40, and this is verses 34 and 35 and then verse 38. After the construction of the tabernacle was finished, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled 
the tabernacle, the cloud covered, the glory filled. And Moses was not able to enter the, the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. For, and then a few verses later, for throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in the tabernacle by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. There were four layers of curtains over that tabernacle, but I believe that through the stitched seams of those curtains, you could see the bright light of the Shekinah glory of God seeping through. Fire inhabited the tabernacle. That holy fire that filled the holy of holies in the tabernacle was the glory of the presence of Yahweh dwelling in the midst of his people. Now, of course, it was a representation of that glory. We find out when Solomon builds the permanent temple later, he says, neither heaven nor the highest heavens can contain you, God. But this was God declaring his intent to dwell in the midst of his people, and he was showing them a representation of his glory. And even that limited representation would kill anyone who saw it directly. About 500 years after that, that tabernacle became the permanent structure known as the temple. David, King David, at the end of his life, gathered all the, the things and, and riches to create the temple, but, but he was not the one who constructed it. By God's design, his son Solomon was the one who actually raised, you know, uh, erected the temple. And again, when the temple was finished, the glory of Yahweh filled the Holy of Holies in the temple. You see this in 2 Chronicles 7 and in 1 Kings 8. Now, fast forward. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the literal word is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word who was with God and was God at the beginning of all things, before anything existed except God. He became flesh and He came down and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. After living a sinless life among the miserable likes of you and me for 33 years, Jesus went to the cross and he died in the place of sinners like you and me. And then he was raised from the dead on the third day. And then the resurrected Christ, the tabernacle of God on earth, ascended back to heaven. Then, on the day recorded in Acts chapter 2, just about a week and a half after his ascension, he created a new tabernacle of God on earth. And that tabernacle is the one that we see a small piece of in this room. It's the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says to Christians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The presence of God in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit is a reality now, both for 
individual believers and for the church as a corporate community of saints. God has made the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, has made every Christian his dwelling place in order to make the church his dwelling place. The individual reality is in order that the corporate reality may be true. The goal of the indwelling of every believer by the Holy Spirit is the filling up of the church with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to mention at this point the difference between indwelling and filling. A lot of Christians have a lot of confusion about this, and I think it's actually amazingly straightforward. Indwelling is the Holy Spirit taking up residence. Filling is the Holy Spirit taking control. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell every single believer, every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says that in Christ, you, after you heard the message of the gospel and believed the message of the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who was given to you as the down payment of your eternal inheritance, looking forward to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of, of his glory. Every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then it is the Spirit's work in each Christian to fill up that Christian. And that means to take control. To take control. When a vessel is filled, when a vessel is filled to overflowing, there's no room for anything else. The Holy Spirit will make sure that happens every time that he intends to use you for his tasks on earth. He will fill you so that it is he who controls you in order to accomplish his will. Now, we're, we're, certainly there's this question of what happens if you resist. Well, you're not stronger than the Holy Spirit. And, I, and by the way, I, I should mention the apostles of Jesus were not expecting or planning what happened on the day of Pentecost. It didn't happen because they were in the right frame of mind. It happened because the Holy Spirit, as a violent rushing wind, came out of heaven and he indwelled them and then he took control of them because he was doing something that was going to happen no matter what any human being wanted to have happen that day. He was creating the church of Jesus Christ. And there will be times when God will do that in your life as well. Uh, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The ideal state of every Christian all the time is that these vessels would be filled up with the Spirit who indwells us and that everything else would be chased out. There wouldn't be any room for anything else. That's the ideal state of every Christian. That's what we are to desire. That's what we are to seek by God's grace. And so God says, don't fill yourself up with other stuff. Don't be dissipated. Don't be spread out, thinned out, diluted. Be filled with the Spirit. The permanent indwelling of every saint and of the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The individual nature of that indwelling of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day is very clear in this passage in verses 3 and 4. It says, there appeared to the, to the tongues of fire distributing themselves as they rested on each one of the apostles. 
individually. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. But again, beloved, the goal of that individual indwelling and filling up of each of those believers with the Spirit was the filling up of the church to overflow the presence of Christ into the world, to spread the temple of God throughout the whole world. Because the temple of God in the world is the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. From Eden to the New Jerusalem, the temple of God in the world is the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. That's what God is spreading as he adds people to his church, through his church. Acts 2 was God filling his new temple with his holy fire in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's filling of a child of God and of his church will take whatever form God deems appropriate at any given time. On that first day in the life of Christ's church, the outward manifestation of the indwelling and overflowing of the Spirit was that each of the apostles spoken languages that he had never learned so that every person in the crowd heard the message of God's mighty work in his or her own language. Beloved, what happened on that day was the reversal of the curse of Babel. It was the reversal of the curse of Babel. Just like at the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread that was going on in Jerusalem when Jesus was arrested, crucified, and raised from the dead, Jerusalem was yet again filled to overflowing because there was another annual pilgrimage festival going on now called Pentecost. Pentecost is from a Greek word that means 50th. That word's comes from the fact that that this feast fell 50 days after the Sabbath that occurred during the Passover week. Acts chapter 1 told us that Jesus appeared for 40 days after his resurrection, which happened on the third day after his death, which is right right there in, in the weekend of the Passover. Now, okay, now, about 10 days later, On Pentecost, Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit on his apostles just as he had promised at his ascension. Now, I've been looking over the last couple of weeks at a few different resources, and one of the best was one that Ron gave me from Greg Beale. Another was uh, that message by Sinclair Ferguson that, by the way, in case I didn't mention, it was 63 minutes long. But there, I want to share with you this, this Babel connection that many authors and, and writers have, have addressed. Because this time around, I mean, I heard about it, I thought about it before, but I didn't really give it ado- adequate consideration. This is amazing. This is amazing, guys. In Genesis chapter 10, we find what we, what's called the Table of Nations. It is a long list of diverse people groups and cultures and languages that arose from the descendants of Noah after the Great Flood. But it's not until Genesis 11 that we find out how all that diversity came about. Genesis 11 tells us that that after the worldwide flood that destroyed all of mankind except the family of Noah, 
the descendants that came from Noah's three sons all lived in one place, one part of the world, and they shared one culture and one language, and they had one goal. The problem was that that goal was a God-forsaking goal. At that point in human history, humanity had the very thing that humanity has, has zealously sought ever since. They had unity. They had harmony. They were all together with one language, one culture, and one goal. The united humanity determined to build a tower that would reach to heaven. Not to the heavens like into the sky, but to heaven as in the seat of God. But make no mistake, they were not trying to get close to God. They were trying to unseat God. They did not say, let us exalt the name of Yahweh. They said, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They used their unity to protect their unity. They were absolutely obsessed with not losing this strength in numbers that they had managed to, to, to acquire. God judged them by turning their unity into diversity. And I need to mention that diversity in and of itself is not a bad thing, and it doesn't cause people to sin against God. Rather, it is the sin in the hearts of men that caused the diversity become, to become a curse. And God is the one, God, when God caused that diversity, he was cursing mankind. You ever think about that? That the diversity that we observe in the world is the result of a curse? Now through the pouring, and by the way, God created the diversity by confusing their languages so that now they all spoke different languages. And because of the sinfulness of man's heart, that caused conflict and it caused division. And that division then caused scattering. And guess what happened? They were spread abroad over the whole earth, just like they said they did not want to have happen. Now, through the pouring forth of his Holy Spirit upon his church that began in Acts chapter 2, God has redeemed all who trust in Jesus from the curse that he imposed at Babel, just as he has redeemed us from the greater curse that he imposed in the garden. He has made many into one by bringing all who believe in Jesus into union with Jesus and by pouring forth onto us his one Holy Spirit on every single Christian, the same Holy Spirit. Some have said that God reversed Babel at the Pentecost, but what they're really talking about is that God reversed the curse of Babel because God did not restore mankind to one language or to one culture. Instead, the Holy Spirit communicated the saving truth of Jesus Christ across all boundaries of language and culture by causing the apostles to speak in everybody else's language. God did not end diversity. He overcame the division that diversity precipitated because of the sin that is in the heart 
of every person. And the only way that the only way that division between human beings will ever be overcome is when God regenerates the hearts of human beings through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way. All all of the concerted efforts of generation after generation of mankind to accomplish harmony and unity are doomed because mankind has cast God aside. Only Jesus will ever unite human beings. So in one place in Jerusalem in which the glory of God had at many points in Israel's history dwelled in the very presence of his covenant people on earth, in the one place where he commanded the Israelites, the Jews, to gather three times each year to worship him, the Holy Spirit, through Jewish men of Christ's choosing, spoke to people of many languages and many cultures in their own languages in order to create a new people of God, made one in Jesus. Beloved, he created on that day, the Holy Spirit created an entirely new unity that we still see wonderfully manifest right here in this room. The list of diverse people, groups, and languages that you find here in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 is reminiscent of the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. The people in the multitude said that day, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Gentile proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We all hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Which mighty deeds? The mighty deeds of God and the person and miraculous work of Jesus Christ who had just been crucified and who had just ascended after being raised from the dead, ascended back to his place of glory. After recording for every generation of Christ's church the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles on that day, Luke then turns his focus to what one apostle, Peter, said to that multitude. Peter's incomparable sermon that day comes in two parts. The first part in verses 14 to 21, Peter explains to the multitude that what they just witnessed is exactly what God had foretold long before through the prophet Joel. Peter says as clearly as words can that this is that. He says this is what was spoken through the prophet. Not this is like that, but this is that. And what Peter declares, Peter declares that what Joel prophesied now applies to the whole church. So what was it that Joel prophesied? He said, it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour out pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Men and women, slaves and free men, old men, young men, sons, daughters, everybody. And then Joel spoke of a coming judgment of God. 
He said, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Go read Revelation 6 and you'll see those same things said again. When? Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. That's the day when Jesus comes back to judge all mankind. Finally, Joel declared how men would be saved from that coming judgment. Verse 21, and it it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here at the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Acts chapter 2, we, we discover that the Lord, upon whose name every person's salvation rests, is the Lord Jesus Christ the same Lord and Savior about whom all of those people had just heard in their own languages. Sinclair Ferguson asserts that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church from the day of Pentecost until now has made every believer a prophet. He's not saying every believer has the spiritual gift of prophecy, but that every believer has the assignment and the Holy Spirit enablement to speak as a prophet on Christ's behalf. And I believe he's correct. For the last several years, I have had an ever-increasing realization that my definition of prophecy has been much more constrained than God's definition. And Ferguson's uh, message cemented that realization. In Numbers chapter 11... 1,500 years before the birth of the church. As Israel set out from Mount Sinai where they had received the law of God, Moses gathered the 70 elders of Israel together and he stationed them around the tabernacle in which the glory of God dwelled in their midst. And then he said, Then the Lord Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and God took of the spirit that was upon Moses and placed him upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. And then it says, but they did not do it again. That means it was a special occurrence. Then when two other men, Eldad and Medad, who were not elders and who had not been there at the tabernacle, but in the camp of Israel, also started prophesying, Joshua insisted that Moses restrain them. Joshua was assuming that they were fakes, that they were acting outside the authority that God had given to Moses. But Moses said to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of Yahweh's people were prophets. Would that all of Yahweh's people were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. You see what he did there? Moses equated the the putting of God's Spirit on a person with that person being a prophet. And Moses expressed his earnest desire that that would be true of all of God's people. It wasn't under the Old Covenant, but Brother Ferguson says it is under the New Covenant. And I think he's right. Ferguson is convinced that that desire expressed by Moses, that all the people of God be prophets, had the effect of prophecy, and that that prophecy was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church. And it has been true of the people of God, all of the people of God, ever since. 
By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, every believer is empowered and equipped by God to speak with God's authority as a prophet of the living God. Not new revelation, not new revelation, but to speak forth by the power of the Holy Spirit the truths that that same Holy Spirit has revealed to his church through the written word of God in order to build up his church day by day and in order to speak the word of, a, of the cross to a world of lost souls so that very many will be saved. When you and I act on this promise, we are acting in the role of God-appointed prophets. There's much more that we could say about this, but I believe there's a very strong case for this. Just go back and look sometime at what the Old Testament prophets did and look at what Christ has told us to do in the world. What it really comes down to is that we speak of sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption, the very things that the Holy Spirit is in the world to convict the world about. That's what prophets have always done. Now in the church... God's intention is that his covenant people would be a kingdom of prophets as they are a kingdom of priests. Uh, you know, you remember, of course, that the priesthood, while it was supposed to be restricted to the sons of Aaron, was actually, by God's intention, supposed to apply to all of his people in, a, in one sense. Because in Exodus 19, before he gave the law, he said that you were to be a kingdom of priests. First, in, in 1 Peter... Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, You, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are priests and we are prophets. Oh, boy, I've got to move on. Acts chapter 2, the second round of Peter's powerful sermon on that day, Begins at verse 22. The same disciple who denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest now boldly declares to the men of Israel who were again gathered at the temple in Jerusalem that the one they just crucified is the Lord of glory and he is the one and only Savior. He presents a fearless, uncompromising, piercing indictment and call to repentance to those very men who had said, crucify him so very recently before this of Jesus. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you all know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then to drive home the impossibility that the grave could hold Jesus... Peter yet again goes back to an Old Testament prophecy, this time from Psalm 16, a psalm of David. And Peter tells us that when David wrote that psalm, he knew he was not talking about himself. He was speaking as a prophet, and he knew he was talking about, the one, who would, about one who would come long after him, 
one who would come in the line of David, just as God had promised, whose dominion would, would be forever. And Peter says that when David wrote these words, he was talking about one whose, whose body would not be abandoned to the grave because it would be raised from the dead. And that one is Jesus. Peter concludes his dynamite sermon with this bold proclamation in verses 32 to 36. This is the punchline of Peter's sermon on that day to the Jerusalem multitude. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. See, Peter's saying, what you just saw happen, that was Jesus that did that. You know, the one you crucified, that was him. Pouring forth the Holy Spirit that the Father promised to his people. And he says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The heart of Peter's words to the men of Israel on that day was that Jesus of Nazareth, the one they had just crucified as the resurrected son of David, the one that God raised from the dead. He is both Lord and Messiah, and he is the only possibility that anyone, any human being ever has to be made right with God. As we'll see next week, Peter's words pierced the hearts of many in that multitude, laid them bare before God ready to do what God required of them. They said, what must we do? And, and Peter's answer on Christ's behalf was they, they had to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. They had to repent. They had to, turn, they had to turn away from everything that had kept them from trusting the Messiah and put their faith in him alone. These were the people who most of all humanity should have recognized Jesus when he came, and instead they had demanded that he be crucified. And now Peter's saying, turn from that rebelliousness and turn your face to God and trust in Jesus alone. And just as Joel had declared, it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of that Lord shall be saved. The same thing is true for you. If you are here today and you have not done so, God's command to you, his command to you, is to abandon all trust in yourself or in anyone or anything else to make you right with God and to trust only in the long-promised Messiah and King of Kings, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, so that you too will be added to the number of his redeemed ones and you too will receive his Holy Spirit in power. There's so much for us to ponder here. And beloved, ponder it, we must. 
Bob suggested that I give you an assignment for the next few weeks, so I'm going to blame this on him. I'm asking that the men who open our worship for the next few weeks, maybe even the next several Sundays, this won't be enforced, it's just a suggestion, that, that those men help us ponder these truths and fill in some of the details that we could not consider in one message. Because this passage is all about whose we are in Christ and the power that we have been given there's this magnificent prayer that, Peter, that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. He says of the saints, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he says that power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all authority and dominion and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. He says that power is yours. And his prayer for the saints is that they would have their eyes open to know that. You and I, beloved, who trust in Jesus have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We live day by day inhabited by the power that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him, seated him above all authority on earth and in heaven. That's the reality that we live in. Last thing I want to point out this morning, just very briefly, is that we see here in this passage something that we've seen over and over in the New Testament, and that is that our gospel message must include the proclamation that God has been talking about Jesus ever since he has been talking to mankind. Our gospel messages are so often constrained to an entirely New Testament proclamation, and that proclamation is absolutely true. But over and over and over in the New Testament, it is proclaimed zealously, powerfully that God was talking about Jesus from Eden until the cross, and he's still talking about Jesus. That's part of our message. The greatest apologetic, the greatest proof for the Bible is the Bible itself. We have to include this declaration in our gospel. You and I who belong to faith... Uh, to Christ by faith, have the exact same person and power that Jesus had when he was here. The one who empowered him to do all his miracles, to speak all that he spoke, the one who raised him from the dead, that Holy Spirit is the one who inhabits and indwells us. Dear Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to take up residence in every believer and then to fill us, to empower us, to go into our own community and all the way to the very ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask you to humble us to follow the Spirit's lead every day and to depend on him in everything that we do. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.